Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, February 5th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the best films of the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. The Slash Film Editor-in-Chief, Peter Soretta, and joining you on today's podcast, Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Chris Evangelista. Hi. <laughs> um, it's funny. D- David Chen even mentioned uh, your intros uh, on the latest edition of the Slash Filmcast, Chris. He, he, he was talking about the evolution from the kind of uh, the, the sad highs to now the, the forced positive highs. It's not forced. I am absolutely positive. I take offense to that. <laughs> anyways it, it, i just thought it was a hilarious conversation uh anyways let's uh let's get into sundance because you guys have compiled the 15 best movies that you guys saw at the festival and uh this is probably gonna be a lot to talk about but i feel like the, you know these are movies like last year what, what was last year at, at sundance what were the breakout film uh well we had eighth grade we had sorry to bother you uh blind spotting searching um those are just the ones off the top yeah. of my head, but I'm sure there were more. Yeah, year before Get Out, you know. So th- there are big movies that like are going to make an impact later in the year, and this is th- the reason why you should care about what is going to be said on this podcast. Is you are going to be on the forefront of this for in, in your friendship circle. You're going to be the one to be like, I heard about this film on this podcast that I, I think it's going to be good. Let's see it opening weekend. So uh, let's get into it. Let's start with number 15. And that is late night. This is a film all three of you saw, but I know Brad, you were the one I think that liked this the most. Yes, apparently I was. Uh, I'll, I'll let Chris and Ben speak to that after I, uh, I do my little spiel here about it. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the hell out of this movie. Um, it's directed by Nisha Ganatra, who has previously uh, directed episodes of uh, The Mindy Project and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's written by Mindy Kaling, uh, who used to be on The Office before, and she also wrote and produced The Office before uh, starting her own series, The Mindy Project. And she also stars in it as a, a woman who works at a chemical plant who uh, suddenly gets a job as a writer on the all-male writing staff of a late-night talk show hosted by Emma Thompson. 
Uh, not not Emma Thompson in real life, but Emma Thompson has a character named Catherine Newberry, who is a, a very respected British comedian. And it's uh, it's it's a really funny movie. Um, it's a, definitely a crowd pleaser. It's it has elements of The Devil Wears Prada and broadcast news, but it's all set uh, in the world of late night television. It has a, a great ensemble cast that includes uh, Reed Scott from V, Paul Walter Hauser from I Tanya, uh, Hugh Dancy from um, from Hannibal. Uh, John Lithgow has a small role in it. It's just, it's a a great ensemble cast. It's really funny, very charming. Uh, has a lot of a lot of energy in it. Uh, Emma Thompson is hilarious, as snarky and fierce as hell. Mindy Kaling uh, does what she does best, uh, also being delightful in her own way. And yeah, I just I really uh, like this movie a lot. It was uh, very funny and just uh, a fun watch. Uh, I really did not like this. This is one of those films I felt really bad. For not liking because it seemed like everyone at Sundance, uh, you know, I, I'm exaggerating. There were a few people who didn't like it, but it did seem like everyone at Sundance loved this movie. And I sat through this whole thing just like stone faced, like what the hell? Like the entire theater was cracking up, and I was just sitting there like, what am I missing here? And I mean, I love the the premise. I love everyone involved with this movie. It has a great cast. I, I really like Mindy Kaling. I, I I love Emma Thompson. So I was looking forward to this, but it just felt it felt like a two hour TV pilot. And uh, there's this thing going on where, you know. Emma Thompson's character, her jokes have gotten stale, but then, you know, so there's early, there's this early part where there's deliberately bad jokes, but then when she starts telling quote unquote good jokes, they just seem just as bad to me. Like, I was like, what are these supposed to be the better jokes? What's so I, I just, I, I, like I said, I feel are, are, really are they, bad. are they better or worse than Jacob's insults in the water cooler? Oh, man, I think that I think Jacob's insults are better, honestly, at this point. Go away. No, I, I, I'm kidding. They're they're obviously not. But <laughs> but I like I said, I felt really bad because everyone seemed to love this and I wanted to like this movie, but it, it left me cold. Ben, are you uh, the monkey in the middle here? No, I'm I, weirdly I'm on Chris's side in this one. I felt I went in with the same like anticipation as everybody else. I was very excited about this, but I, I just feel like the it feels like a movie from you know ten or fifteen years ago or something, and the comedy just did not land for me at all. And it was I had a really same like the, a strange experience, just like Chris, where it was like everyone was laughing in surround sound around us, and we were like, uh, okay. Um, and I you know I feel bad about it because I love like the movie clearly is wearing its heart on its sleeve. It has, you know, I love the messages that it, that it has in there. Um, its heart is clearly in the right place and, and it's like a cool premise and everything. I just didn't think that the execution <laughs> was up to snuff at all. It should also be pointed out that Chris and Ben have a real problem with laughter and joy. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our number 14. That is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Ben, tell us about this. Yeah, so this movie uh, is written and or co-written and directed by a guy named Joe Talbot, who is a fifth-generation San Franciscan, and it it you really feel the love for that city and, and the sort of complicated feelings for the city in this movie. It's about these two black guys who are sort of struggling against gentrification and trying to make their way in the city. Uh, one of them, uh, his grandfather built 
this uh, really, really nice Victorian home in a really nice part of town. And the house has been vacated. So Jimmy, who is the grandson, moves in with his best friend and just sort of like takes over, uh, even though they don't actually own the place. And he's trying to like reclaim this sense of identity. And the movie deals with, you know, issues of like, uh, you know, what makes a home? What makes uh, what's the difference between a home and a house? And like, how how do you how, how can you um, occupy a space uh, in a world that is in some ways leaving people behind? Um, it's a really poetic movie that I enjoyed a lot. And Joe Talbot, the co-writer and director, ended up winning the U.S. Dramatic Directing Award and the U.S. Dramatic Special Jury Award for creative collaboration for this film. So I would just say to put it on your radar, uh, A24 has picked this up for distribution, but it doesn't have an official release date yet. Cool. Number 13 on the list is The Nightingale. Uh, yes, this is the new film from Jennifer Kent, who directed The Babadook. And it is, it's a very unpleasant film. This is actually the, my final film of the fest. I saw it the last night before I left. And it was kind of a, a downer to go out on because even though I, it's a good movie and I gave it a good review, it's really hard to watch. Um, it's set in the 1800s in Tasmania. And it's about this woman who's a, a convict. She's a former convict and she's basically an indentured servant to this uh, uh army captain who is just this sadistic bastard and he 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 puts her through hell and he does something really terrible i'm dancing around it here because to give it all away would be a spoiler but he does something very bad to her and the rest of the movie is about her trying to track him down across you know uh, tasmania to to get revenge and she has uh, an indigenous guide with her. And at first she doesn't get along with him because she's like a racist character, but they sort of learn to respect each other in this weird way. It's, it's a very brutal film. And uh, I don't say that lightly because, you know, I, I am not squeamish at all. I tend to be able to, uh, put up with violence in movies very easily. I don't know what that says about me, but I, I don't really get bothered by it. But this film in particularly, was extremely violent to the point where it started to become like oppressive. Like I was like, Oh my God. And it's like, it's a little bit over two hours too. So by the time it ended, I just felt like exhausted. And I went back to, you know, to the condo and I was just like, man, (laughs) I wish I had seen a more pleasant movie before I left. But beyond that, it's very good. Number 12 on the list is Brittany runs a marathon. This was one of our uh, most anticipated movies from the festival. Uh, It was one of my picks. So I was very excited to see it. Uh, in the movie, Jillian Bell, who uh, we've seen in 22 Jump Street and Rough Night, plays this uh, directionless 27-year-old woman uh, who spends her nights clubbing with friends, her mornings sleeping in, uh, and her afternoons shuffling off to work late at an improv club. Um, and she gets a little bit of a wake-up call when she goes to a doctor and finds out that she has uh, an elevated heart rate, high blood pressure, and a fatty liver. And she kind of just throws her for a loop, um, and she real- realizes that she needs to start treating herself better and uh, lose some weight. So, so she takes some inspiration from uh, a divorced neighbor, played by M- Michaela Watkins, in her apartment building, and decides to start running. Uh, she starts off running a block, then two blocks, and she keeps going. Um, and in it, she kind of gets this you know, newfound confidence in herself and gets comfortable in uh, her own body and the, the movie is very much uh, on one level feels like this typical inspirational sort of sports comedy uh, but it ends up dealing with a lot more than that because it dives into these uh, emotional issues of uh, really you know appreciating yourself and 
you know, kind of understanding what it takes to be a good person beyond just getting yourself in shape. And Jillian Bell has a fantastic breakthrough performance here. Uh, obviously, she's very funny, and her character uh, lends to her uh, um, her sense of humor, and she's always making self-deprecating jokes and being the funny one in the group. Uh, but she gets to show her dramatic chops, too. She puts in a, a great performance, really uh, showing the, the sadder, introspective side of her life when she starts realizing that there's more that she needs to fix besides just, you know, getting uh, getting her body fit. Um, it, it's the directorial and uh, writing debut of Paul Downs' uh, Kalizo. Uh, he's a playwright, and he does a fantastic job with this movie. has a lot of heart to it. Uh, it's just as funny as it is inspiring. It's uh, It was... And it's another crowd pleaser. I, I talked to a lot of people who love this movie, and if you need any more evidence of that, it uh, won the audience award in the U.S. dramatic side at Sundance. So this is one that a lot of people are going to enjoy. And it got picked up by Amazon, so you should probably see that later this year uh, in theaters and on that service. Um, let's move on to number 11, uh, The Death of Dick Long. I was also looking forward to this. It is the uh, uh, directorial effort of Daniel Scheinert, who is one half of the duo who directed Swiss Army Man a few years ago. Um, this movie is not nearly as sort of um, out there as that, but it does take a, a really weird turn. So the premise of the film is these uh, these three guys hang out in a band in Alabama, and one of them ends up dying mysteriously one night. And we spend the first half of the movie basically uh, with the two survivors who are just complete morons, but in like a really funny way, they they basically try to bluff their way through a series of escalating incidents trying to cover up the death of their friend. And um, it, the first half of the movie is just like laugh out loud funny. Uh, it, I think it's actually one of the funniest movies. It, it will probably end up being one of the funniest movies of 2019. But at the same time, it, it takes a turn when you learn what actually happened to the guy who dies. Uh, and it goes in a very, very different direction. And I'm not entirely certain that audiences are going to be on board for it. But uh, it gets into some really uh, sort of complex issues. And um, the movie always treats its characters with respect and never uh, really mocks its protagonists, though that would be incredibly easy with how how sort of uh, cheesy and dumb they are. And they like they listen to songs like Stain's It's Been a While and like Nickelback and stuff on the soundtrack. And that's all completely unironic in this movie. Um, but Brad, I know you saw this too. What did you think about it? Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. This movie is uh, hilarious. It it's, uh, has flares of of uh, Coen Brothers, dark comedy, and the uh, Andre Highland and Michael Abbott Jr. are <laughs> really are just this great, like you know, dim-witted duo. But they're not dim-witted to the point of where it feels like uh, an exaggerated, goofy comedy. It's it's all very grounded, and it's just, it's just funny because they just don't think things through and they keep making these terrible mistakes. Um, but yeah, the the turn is a surprising and very unexpected uh, <laughs> twist in, in, in how the um, titular character is killed. And it's um, it gets a little less funny, but it's it doesn't necessarily lo- lose itself, or, um, I didn't think. I, I still found myself really liking it. And I think that, if anything, it, it kind of, I don't know, it, it elevates it from just being a, a straight-up comedy. It, it, does, it does have something to say, albeit with a very odd... Uh, premise at the, at yeah. the center of it. Um, yeah. It's thankfully it has distribution. A twenty four already has it, um, and it's a good thing because I'm not sure if anyone else would have been brave enough to pick it up because it is uh, a, a, quite the oddball 
uh, dark comedy. <laughs> yeah. Number 10 on our list is the only film you can see right now in your home, and that is Velvet Buzzsaw. Uh, yeah, I won't talk too much about this because we talked about this the other day on Slash Film Daily. But uh, yeah, this this is now on Netflix. It's a Dan Gilroy movie. It's about killer paintings. Um, I know not everyone is on the same wavelength of this movie. Some people just thought it was too silly. Some people wished it had something more to say. Uh, I it, it just worked for me. It's it's just very funny, and I, I laughed almost entirely through the movie, like from beginning to end. And uh, I don't know, it, it just really worked for me. It's it's definitely a silly movie. It's definitely even maybe I'd say a stupid movie, but I it worked incredibly well for me, and uh, I'm I'd be happy to watch this again. This is of all the films I've seen, this is one of them that I definitely would watch again. Well, I have good news for you, Chris. You can watch it now on Netflix, so you have the opportunity. Wow. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> number nine on our list is Native Son. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, this is the first film from director Rashid Johnson. It is an adaptation of Richard Wright's 1940 novel, and it follows a character named Bigger Big Thomas, who is played by Moonlight's Ashton, Sha- uh, Ashton Sanders. He played the teenage Chiron in that movie. Um, he is like a uh, he's a black guy living in Chicago who has green hair and he loves punk music and Beethoven. And he basically like defies stereotypes at every turn and uh, he ends up taking a job as a driver for this really wealthy white family and the film you know ex- explores these issues of race and class and eventually ends up taking a, a pretty surprising turn that that almost pushes the movie into like a full-on horror movie um, Maddie Libatik the cinematographer of a lot of Darren Aronofsky's movies shot this film. So it looks great. Um, there's this really sinister aspect to it. And uh, Sanders is really, really good in the lead role. Uh, Kiki Lane from If Beale Street Could Talk is in there as well. Bill Camp from uh, The Night Of and Molly's Game is in there. Uh, Margaret Qualley from The Leftovers is there as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really good movie. I, I like this one a lot. And has anybody picked this up? God, I think this one is actually A24 previously planned to distribute it. But then HBO picked it up from them. So I think it's going to be on HBO sometime in 2019. Okay, cool. Number eight on our list is Big Time Adolescence. Yes, uh, this was another movie that I was very excited before the festival even started uh, to check out. And thankfully it delivered. I was not disappointed. In fact, I was maybe even more impressed than I thought I would be. Uh, It's a movie that uh, Sundance has seen several times before. It's uh, kind of a typical coming-of-age comedy where you're following this high school kid as he's learning some lessons about growing up. Uh, This time it comes in the form of uh, him sort of idolizing his uh, older sister's ex-boyfriend, who is this kind of uh, directionless drug-dealing loser named Zeke, played by Pete Davidson from Saturday Night Live. And uh, But he's not, you know, this this total chump because he's very uh, affable and friendly and personable and hilarious. So it's easy to see why... This high school kid, uh, played by Griffin Gluck, would look up to him and likes hanging out with him. They're best friends. They have a great rapport with each other. Um, there's just a lot of funny things that come up between them as uh, as they as they hang out. But obviously, the the kid has a little bit to learn about you know what really matters in life, and that maybe he's heading a little bit down the wrong path and doesn't want to end up uh, like Zeke, no matter how cool uh, he might think he is. This movie is uh, extremely funny. It was, it's definitely one of the funniest movies I saw at the festival. Um, Pete Davidson deserves, you know, a lot of credit. Even he's not necessarily great at playing characters um, when it comes to Saturday Night Live, and here he's basically playing a version of himself of sorts. But he's just he's he's very 
uh, just pleasing to watch. He feels like, you know, one of your friends that you might have uh, hung out with in high school, even if you didn't necessarily think that their life was going anywhere. Um, So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely worth checking out when you see uh, when it or when it gets released. I I actually I was just looking at it. I don't think it's been picked up for distribution yet. Yeah, not yet. It has not been acquired yet. So hopefully someone picks this up. It sounds like it could be like an HBO kind of thing to me. I don't I mean, maybe. I don't know. I, 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 I hope it gets picked up sooner than later. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, people will definitely enjoy it. So I, yeah, hope, hopefully it gets snagged. Number seven on our list is wounds. Yeah. So army hammer plays a bartender in this new Orleans bar. That's sort of like overrun with cockroaches. And it was funny because army hammer actually wandered around the Sundance film festival, like spreading fake cockroaches throughout a lot of the theaters that the movie was going to be playing in. Uh, so he's, he sort of got like some viral marketing going wait, for the movie wait, before him himself did this. Yes, like he didn't he have himself. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he probably had a team as well, but I I heard from people that like saw him like reaching into his pockets and throwing fake cockroaches on the ground. So he was apparently taking great joy in in messing with people in this way. Um, but yeah, the the movie he stars in the film. He plays this bartender, and uh, he has a rocky relationship with his girlfriend, who's played by Dakota Johnson, and he still harbors feelings for his ex, who is played by Zazie Beetz from Atlanta, and she is amazing in this movie um it's her best movie so far way better than you know something like deadpool 2 which i i appreciated her work in but this this actually gives her like a real character to chew on um and then everything really just sort of goes to hell when he picks up a cell phone that was left in the bar after a bar fight and then the phone has some really really gruesome imagery on it but it also has this like supernatural effect on the people who uh, it comes in contact with and i won't spoil what happens but um it, it gets pretty wild uh the director babak anvari Uh, He really sort of vacillates between tones. There were times when I was fully, you know, mesmerized and like on board with what was going on. And then there were times in this movie where I'm like rolling my eyes like this is ridiculous. But there's something to be said for the fact that it really has this go for broke sensibility that that made it compelling all the way through. So uh, that one, I believe Annapurna Pictures picked that up and that's going to be coming out in theaters uh, this March. Cool. Number six on our list is Honey Boy. Honey Boy. Uh, well, this was something one that we were interested in before the festival began as well. Uh, this was actually a good year for movies that we were excited about, de- uh, mostly delivering on our uh, hopeful expectations. This one uh, is written by Shia LaBeouf and directed by Alma Harrell. And it is uh, a, an autobi- autobiographical account of Shia LaBeouf's life as a child star living with his abusive uh, and substance-addicted father. And it cuts back and forth in time from the time that he spent as uh, a child star on the Disney show Even Stevens, even though it's not uh, he's not exactly playing uh, himself. It's a kid named Otis, and he's on a show similar to Even Stevens. Um, and then 10 years later, we, we follow Lucas Hedges as the older Shia LaBeouf, who is kind of dealing with his own substance abuse issues uh, and going through therapy at rehab and trying to sort through these demons that are in his life as a result of his, uh, you know, misguided uh, parenting by his father. And what makes this even more interesting is that Shia LaBeouf actually plays his own father in this movie. And it is an astounding performance. He gives it his all. And you can really tell that it is a cathartic movie for him. He's really working through some stuff. And I, I think if he wasn't playing that role, and it wasn't based on his real life, it might not be quite as harrowing because that definitely adds a layer of interest 
uh, for me, and it, it makes it feel a little bit more hard hitting. Um, it, it's not it's it's not entirely something that we haven't seen before. We've seen you know movies like Precious, and there's flares of the Florida Project here, uh, but it's it really is the presence of Shia LaBeouf both on the page and in front of the camera that uh, makes this work so well. Amazon, I think, picked this up for five million dollars, so we'll be seeing this probably later this year in theaters and on the service. Chris, you also saw this film, right? Uh, yeah, and everything Brad said is spot on. Uh, Shia LaBeouf's performance alone in this is is phenomenal. It 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 uh, it, it it floored me basically. Um, I never actually thought he was a bad actor. I know he had some sort of like weird backlash against him. I think it it's probably because of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Everyone was just angry about him being in that movie. But I always thought he was actually a really good actor to begin with. But with this, he he proves how great he is. And it, it's almost like he's, he's like exercising his demons with us. He, he's trying to explain to the audience basically what his behavior over the last few years has been about is, you know, cause he's had a lot of public meltdowns and stuff like that. And this is like, this is why I, I'm the person I am. And it's, it's an incredible uh, movie and Noah Jupe who plays the young version of him is, is phenomenal as well. Yeah, he's getting acclaim. Uh, Shia LaBeouf is getting acclaim for uh, across like most critics, and I think that's saying something. As you said, like I feel like he was one of those like punch boys for a while. Um, it might be interesting watching this and going back to that season of Project Greenlight, where Shia was a kid in like one of his you know early films, uh, because you get to see some of his like family life there and stuff. Um, number five on our list is a movie called The Lodge. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, this was on my most anticipated list, and it, it definitely uh, lived up to um, the expectations. Um, this is a, uh, a horror movie. Um, it's from the directors of Good Night, Mommy, which is a, a German horror film, which I didn't actually like that much. But this I, I loved. Um, Riley Kehoe plays uh, this woman named Grace, and she's ab- about to marry this this man and this, this the guy has two children already they're you know they're um one of the kids is played by uh or the the kid who played bill in it and so they're, they're around that age they're not they're not t- quite teenagers there's like somewhere in between and these kids do not like their uh, potential stepmother even though when we meet her she seems very nice and she tries really hard to you know, make an effort and include them and be like, you know, here, get to know me. They, they, they're having none of it. And, uh, so they start digging up dirt on her and they find out she grew up in this doomsday cult. And so she has this like traumatic background and it's, it's hard to go much further in talking about this because the more I say, the more I'm going to give away, but it basically it boils down to, Riley Kehoe and the two kids get trapped in this cabin or lodge, if you will, uh, during this this freak snowstorm. And they're all alone and the power goes out and things start going very, very wrong. And it's it's incredibly intense. It's legitimately scary. Uh, Riley Kehoe's performance is is fantastic. Um, uh, I've talked about this before, but you know, as a horror fan, I don't really scare easily, but this movie really got to me. Like I spent the whole movie just in this incredible tense, uh, seating position. Just my, my, my fists were clenched. I just felt like I was going to like snap. (laughs) That's how tense this movie is. So, uh, if you're a horror fan, you should really put this on your radar. 
And this is coming from Neon, the distribution company, I think, run by Tim League, the founder of the Alamo Drafthouse. Uh, this company has released films like I, Tanya, Ingrid Goes West, um, Three Identical Strangers. So that should be coming. Uh, the Lodge should be coming later this year. Uh, number four on our list is I Am Mother. Yeah, this is one of the few like full-blown sci-fi movies that played at Sundance this year. And I really love this movie. It's It's a very, very, very familiar premise. It's about a girl who is raised in total isolation by a robot. And she thinks that the outside world, she lives in this bunker, and she thinks that the outside world is uninhabitable. But then one day, a uh, an injured woman, played by Hilary Swank, uh, bangs on the airlock door outside, and everything is sort of thrown into chaos from there. Like the, her world is turned upside down. The lead actress is uh, a UK performer named Clara Rugard, and she is awesome in this movie. She, I, I feel like after seeing her, this is like one of those instant star-making performances. Um, she's terrific, and like I said, even though there's uh, you know, the the premise and everything feels very, very familiar. It's all executed like almost perfectly, um, especially the robot character, which is the mother who, who raised Claire Rugard's character. Um, it, it's a practical suit that is worn by Luke Hawker, who is a, a guy who works at uh, Weta Workshop and who designed the suit. And then there's also like some digital enhancements going on in there as well. But this uh, robot creation, for me, it, like, instantly launched into the pantheon of really you know like the all-time great uh movie robots like up next to you know hal 9000 and robbie the robot and the terminator and all that stuff like it, it is it's that good in terms of like the visual effects and how that character uh plays such a huge central role in the story so i i can't wait for you guys to see this i i looked it up and i think Studio Canal is distributing this in Australia and New Zealand, but it doesn't have American distribution yet. So we'll keep an eye out for this one. Yeah, this, this sounds like it definitely is going to get distribution. Like it feels like you know, it feels like Netflix usually buys up like these kind of genre uh, things. But uh, who knows? Um, number three on our list is The Farewell. I know a couple of you saw this, but Brad, tell us about it. Uh, the Farewell is a very touching and funny uh, family drama about uh, this Chinese family who uh, finds out that their grandmother, uh, affectionately referred to as Nene, uh, has cancer and only has a few months to live. But out of respect for her, rather than telling her that she has cancer, they decide to make her think that she's perfectly healthy, but they all want to say goodbye to her, so they plan this fake wedding so that they can all go back to China and say their farewells to her under the guise of this big family celebration. Uh, Aquafina stars in this movie uh, as a 20-something who really loves her grandma and is kind of questioning these, these methods. And as she goes back to China, she really gets in tune and in touch with her family, uh, some of which they've been apart for a while because they moved so far away from home. And you just get this, this really loving portrait of generations and family and culture and even though it's very firmly based in chinese culture it's universal um seriously anybody who, who has ever had a grandmother which should be all of us will find themselves crying several times throughout this movie uh it's beautiful writer director lulu wang it's uh, has made a very personal movie and it's just it's anchored by this incredible ensemble cast and it, uh, not only is aquafina great because she's doing something here where she's not playing this kind of goofy, quirky character. She's just playing, you know, just a, a normal girl, and it, it allows her to show a whole different side uh, to her to her acting skills. 
Um, and the rest of the cast is filled out by people like Dima, Diane Lin, uh, Zhao Susan uh, specifically is fantastic. And it's just, yeah, it's the kind of movie that audiences are really going to to fall in love with if they give it a chance. Very cool. The, this uh, Lu Wang, uh, when I was in Boston and making short films and stuff, she served as, I think, a cinematographer on a couple of the short films I made with my partner, Elaine Mack. So it's really cool to see that she uh, is making it. Uh, Chris, you also saw this film. Uh, yeah, this was uh, I think this was the first film I saw at Sundance and I, I actually knew nothing about it. I went in blind and it 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 blew me away. It charmed me. I, I loved this movie. This is probably one of my like top two of the fest. Um, uh, you know, everything Brad said is spot on. And also, I, I just want to uh, add to the the Aquafina praise. Um, I wasn't I wasn't not a fan of Aquafina, but I thought everything she had done so far was like shtick like she was playing very broad characters and she was really good at that but i was like all right can she do anything else and with this uh i was amazed at how layered and subtle her performance is she's i i think she's actually like a legitimately great actress after watching this and i hope she does more stuff like this because she she has this you know she has this range i never even realized she had so that was like uh, like a revelation to me. It was like, oh, wow, I can't believe she's this good of an actress. So I hope she keeps doing stuff like this. If you told us two years ago that Aquafino was going to be a an actress that we were talking about, I think that'd be shocking. Uh, this film, The Farewell, is coming from A24. We don't know when, but probably later this year. Uh, we're now to our top two. Let's talk about number two on our list. It's Paradise Hills. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, I went into this one blind. I had no idea about anything, uh, and I was completely blown away by this. It is the most impressive visual movie that I've seen in quite some time, especially for something with, uh, you know, theoretically a pretty low budget. I don't think they've actually released what the budget is, but the production design in this is like next level. The cinematography is is unreal. It reminded me a, a lot of Tarsem Singh's The Fall, which came out in 2006, and that's like maybe a deep cut for some of our listeners, but for the cinephiles out there, the hardcore cinephiles, I'm sure many of you have, have probably seen that movie, and uh, just drawing that comparison alone should be enough to get you guys to, to be interested in checking this out. It's a candy-colored fairy tale from a Spanish director named Alice Waddington. It's her first movie. It's kind of amazing in, in that regard. Uh, it stars Emma Roberts as this woman who's been captured and, and sort of trapped on an island that is supposed to be like a an improvement facility for young women where they're supposed to be um, like have all of their uh, individual quirks and um, personality traits uh, basically like hammered out of them and returned to society as like complacent girls basically um and there's some mysteries in there as well and those are all really compelling but man the those visuals are just i mean that that alone is uh, enough to make paradise hills worth seeking out the, unfortunately i don't think it has distribution yet so i'm i'm really really hoping that somebody decides to pick this up because i, I want everybody to see this film yeah, I think Lionsgate might be distributing it internationally, but no one here yet. And this uh, this was part of the next competition, which is uh, a really cool, cool competition I talked about in the most anticipated episode. Uh, let's move on to our, our number one. Uh, this was saw by uh, seen by two of our writers at Sundance, and it is a film called The Report. Uh, Chris, I think you were the one that liked this the most. Tell us about it. Uh, yeah, the report. It's from Scott Z. Burns, who is it's his directorial debut. Um, he's he's 
worked with Steven Soderbergh a few times and Steven Soderbergh produced this film. Uh, this is a political thriller slash drama based on the true story of uh, a Senate staffer played by Adam Driver who was tasked with looking into the CIA's quote unquote enhanced interrogation techniques following nine 11. And of course, as we all know now, they were, you know, they were basically just torture and, you know, the United States is not supposed to torture people. So, you know, we basically sold our values out in, in a way. And it's, uh, I, I'm a sucker for political dramas. And this is one of those films where, people run into rooms and they throw file folders down on tables and they start yelling. And I, I just love stuff like that. And, and Adam driver's performance is so good. Like he's tasked with rattling off so much information. It's a very you know, like talky movie and he, he finds a way to make this, you know, all this talking really exciting. Just the way he delivers the lines in this really like rapid way. Uh, I, I can't think of another actor who could pull this off as well as he does here. And it's got a great cast. Um, Annette Benning plays Diane Feinstein, which I didn't realize that she was playing until I saw the movie and she's really good. Um, you know, it's way too early to start talking about next year's Oscars, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, she ends up being nominated for her performance in this. And, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's a great movie. It's a, a very, uh, stinging indictment of almost everyone, like not just the Bush administration, even, the Obama administration gets some blame here for, you know, not uh, following up on stuff. And it, it's weird. There's, there's stuff in this movie that actually happens in vice too, but it's done in a completely different way. And I actually wrote a piece. It's up on the site today where I talk about how both films tackle almost the same subject in very, very different ways. And I think Amazon picked this up. Yeah. Amazon did pick this up uh, two days after its uh, world premiere at Sundance. Brad, you also saw this movie. What did you think? Yeah, uh, I, I love this movie as well. It was my favorite of the festival. Uh, everything Chris said is true, and it's uh, it's infuriating because of that, just because of the all of the things that you see that went down behind the scenes in order to uh, get you know what what is torture approved and sanctioned by the government, despite having no evidence that it was working whatsoever. Uh, this is a very dense movie. Um, it's also a very quiet and subtle movie. It's along the lines of like a, a spotlight um, or all the president's men. Um, there's so much information and there's, there is, it's just, it's a lot to take in. And uh, so it, it can be a little overwhelming at times just simply because of the, most of the movie is just exposition and learning these things. But like Chris said, because of Adam driver, he really cuts through it and it doesn't need any like extra flair uh, like Aaron Sorkin might give it, you know, in, in a movie that he wrote. It's it's pretty straightforward and a lot like Spotlight kind of let the story, you know, of uh, Catholic priests, you know, molesting young boys speak for itself and let, let the weight of that story hit the audience. That's exactly what this, this movie does, too. Uh, it's it's definitely going to be uh, one that people will want to see. I, I Like Chris said, it is early for Oscars, but I think that this will be one that uh, Amazon wants to push for awards consideration uh, because it's it chronicles a very important and troubling time in our recent history, and uh, it has a lot of uh, acclaim-worthy performances. It's always tough when you see something at Sundance and you want to say that this is going to be an award contender or best of year contender, but you're still in January. But, you know, it happens all the time at Sundance. You see, like, films like Manchester by the Sea or Get Out or, or whatever, and uh, you just have that feeling about it. You can read 
all of our reviews. We'll link to those the reviews of those films in the show notes. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And, pl- and also, go to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star rating. Write us a couple words. Uh, Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.